Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello everyone, and welcome to the History of Byzantium. Episode 146. What's the plan? Last time we talked about the reality of the Eastern conquests. The Romans had taken control of their borderlands and established a new frontier around Antioch. However, what they'd gained was not necessarily a springboard for further expansion. Much of it was poor, chaotic, and demilitarized. What then were the Romans thinking? Did they see this success as an end in itself, or did they imagine a future of glorious expansion like their ancestors had enjoyed? Listener S.V. had this on his mind when he asked, Are there any reports on the Romans' long-term goals or strategy? Are they hoping to reconquer all the former eastern provinces? Let's go first to our expert, this is the answer that Anthony Caldellis gave when I put the question to him. So there was a specific plan, I believe, to reconquer Cilicia. Um, possibly Antioch was part of the original plan. Um, certainly um, Crete and Cyprus. Uh, and to reduce Aleppo as far as possible, I don't think they could have imagined that they would have succeeded so much as to reduce it to a basically a client state, which they did. I think that was a plan, and I think that plan had been formulated um, in the mid-50s, 950s, and that's why I started the book then, because um, I believe that the, the, the Byzantine strategy of defense um, against the, especially the, the Hamdanids um, in Aleppo changed in 955 when Nicephorus Focus was appointed basically the commander of the um, Roman armies, I think that the idea was to eliminate the threat and not just deal with it. And they implemented um, a, a very carefully thought out strategy for reducing Cilicia and Aleppo and eventually Antioch, So, including the islands. So the, the plan basically took 15 years, certain, from 955 to 970, let's say, with Antioch um, and, and the reduction of Aleppo to client status in that year, 
Um, that was the plan. And it makes perfect sense. Uh, that is the um, territory that they thought was most defensible, um, that especially in order to protect the Roman homeland in Asia Minor. In other words, having the Taurus Mountains as the border allowed for these constant raids um, by Muslim armies, um, massive raids sometimes, very destructive. Um, so the strategy of reducing those territories, either expelling or converting their Muslim population and resettling them with Romans and Armenians, many of whom were part of the army, um, and making Antioch into basically a, a forward base um, of the empire, it worked. It worked brilliantly for almost a century. Beyond that, um, well, first of all, there's no proof of any concerted plan to conquer more. And secondly, it wouldn't have made any sense. The, the Byzantines were not interested in absorbing mostly Muslim territory. That was very difficult to govern, and they didn't want it. And th since their objectives were primarily strategic, and they had achieved those, there was really no reason to go beyond that. Um, so the plan is really a focus plan. Uh, it was implemented when Nicephorus was placed in charge of the army um, for 15 years after that, and it wasn't changed thereafter. Now, what you see afterwards are, you know, occasional raids, right? So Tsimiskis goes on these raids, just these big circuits where you go by Damascus, end up on the coast. The one place that they were interested in taking but never did was Tripoli, um, for the purposes of um, that, they wanted that as a forward base against naval attacks, and they never actually conquered it. Though there were times when they exercised some kind of distant, um, you know, patron relationship over it. But anyway, uh, beyond that, it was just plunder. Um, in other words, when they go on these big raids into um, the into the Mesopotamia, or the Near East, uh, the, down the coast, uh, that's just for you know showing strength and gathering plunder. Um, and that's how it remained for, um, for, about, a, for about a century. Uh, and this is completely different context, remember, from what was going on in the Caucasus uh, with Armenia, Georgia, and in the Balkans with Bulgaria. Those are, two, those are three very different theaters. Um, but you asked about the one in the southeast. Yes. And I... I think that was the plan. So it's a focused plan. It was carried out successfully. And then they just maintained it. It was all about maintaining the equilibrium that they had established, which worked very well. Now look at Asia Minor. The raids stopped until the Seljuks show up. Um, so it worked. Yeah. And I think you, I think you sort of imply in the book that say, um, Sclerus or, or Bardas Focus or whoever had become emperor instead of Basil, probably nothing would have changed on that front, that they might have continued raiding and seen what had happened, but there was no sort of defensible frontier to advance to. So there, there, was, no, there was no profit in trying to expand. Exactly. And there are a number of moments when the emperors, the, the, the Byzantine emperors command an overwhelming military advantage. Uh, and uh, Tsimiskis, during his great raid um, in 75 and 
later Basel II, when he twice visits the East, they show up with these, you know, imperial armies that are, you know, conquering armies. There's no credible defense against them. Uh, they clearly could have done more damage or conquered or tried to conquer, but I think they knew, they understood pretty well that it would just have been impossible to establish imperial authority uh, among those populations. Um, you know, Antioch was still a primarily a Christian city. Um, you know, probably mostly Melkites or Arabic-speaking Christian, but Christian nonetheless. And in the Islamic configuration of ge geography and empire, Antioch had been a backwater. It hadn't been that important. Uh, but as an oper a forward operating base of the Byzantine Empire, it was very important. But what would you do with Aleppo? And it would have just been too vulnerable and too hostile. And anyway, they got what they wanted from it in the form of a treaty, um, which which kept, they kept for for about a century. So let's unpack that answer a little. You already know the first part, that Nicephorus Focus made a specific plan to defeat Seyfatola on his own turf. That's why he recruited the cataphracts and used the mobile infantry square. Once Aleppo had been sacked and Antioch had been taken, the Romans had created a new defensible frontier. We talked about this last week. The mountains now provided a shield for the empire, and Antioch, being on the Arab side of that line, had to be heavily garrisoned to be safe. Laodicea and parts of the Syrian coast were also held because they could be resupplied by sea in the event of attack. You can't actually see Tripoli on our base map, but it's the next city to the south. If the Romans could have taken it, that would have given them control of the whole shore facing Cyprus. Their ships could then have roamed that corner of the Mediterranean without fear. But alas, it was too well fortified and remained a base for enemy attacks on the Byzantine position. So according to Professor Caldellis, there was no plan for further expansion. In my follow-up question that you heard, I asked about Bardas Skliros and Bardas Phocas, who are the two men who will challenge Basil II for the throne. In some histories, the implication is that Basil had no interest in further eastern expansion, but if one of these two rebels had seized the throne, then they would have been. Professor Caldellis dismisses this, what he says in the book is that they probably would have done what Zimiskis did, which is to raid around the borderlands and see if anything shook loose. Perhaps they would have just levied more tribute on Muslim cities, or maybe they would have attempted to hold some of them if there was a practical way to do so. The practical problems to further expansion in this direction were manifold. Have a look at the map again, and you can see the geographical issues with trying to conquer Syria and northern Mesopotamia. For a start, there are no mountains to hide behind. As we talked about last episode, the Romans could only afford most of their new territory by not garrisoning them. They filled the mountain towns with Christian populations and then left them to get on with life, whereas Antioch 
situated on the flat land of Syria, required 4,000 professional troops to man the walls. So any city you capture in Arab territory will require thousands of soldiers to keep it safe, all of whom have to be paid year-round. Most of these cities are situated on the Euphrates or Tigris rivers or one of their offshoots, both of which are highways to all the other Muslim cities of the region. So any city taken is going to be very vulnerable to sudden attack from enemy forces coming north. The hinterlands of these places were fertile, but beyond that was usually desert. And who lives there? The fierce Bedouin tribes, by now determinedly Muslim and hostile to Roman encroachment. So any attempt to hold these cities and bring them into the network of the empire will be dangerous and expensive. If you were thinking about conquest, then it's probably easier to imagine swallowing the region whole rather than conquering it piecemeal. If you think about the rise of the Achaemenid Persians, Alexander the Great, Pompey, Khusrow II, and then finally the Caliphate, all of those conquerors just scooped up the Levant in one campaign. They didn't get into a dogfight with each individual city. They swept through, making it clear that resistance was futile. Was anything like that possible for Byzantium? No, I'm afraid not. The manpower just wasn't available for anything on that scale. And as we just saw in the narrative, the Fatimid Caliphate of Egypt was more than capable of offering the resistance necessary to make a move like that unthinkable. The other problem Professor Caldellis brought up was that to expand the empire, the Romans would have to govern Muslim populations. As I hinted at last week, this probably would have led to ideological issues for the Byzantines. We've seen periodic attempts to convert the Jews and much effort made to correct the belief of dissenters. Who knows what would have been unleashed had majority Muslim cities had to chafe under a Christian occupation. It seems clear from the treaty signed with Aleppo that men like Nicephorus and John were well aware of this problem, and they weren't keen to experiment. There were, of course, still Christian communities throughout the former eastern provinces. Had the Byzantines been able to swallow the region whole, perhaps they could have then promoted the local Arabic-speaking Christians to positions of power and hoped to manage the Muslim population that way. But they would have needed overwhelming military superiority to achieve this, and not only would they have faced constant uprisings against the new order, but they probably would have provoked the spirit of jihad amongst the Muslims of Iraq, Iran, and Egypt. So I think it's safe to conclude that there was no Roman plan to retake the eastern provinces. Taking control of their borders was achievement enough for now. However, just because no plans were in the works, and just because Basil II would show no interest in this direction, does that mean that no Romans of this period discussed the possibility of further expansion? I bring this up because many historians have speculated about what might have happened had Nicephorus or John lived longer. 
Nicephorus in particular seems like a man who would never have stopped fighting. And the suggestion that he wanted Roman soldiers to be considered martyrs if they were killed by Muslim swords speaks of a man who at least had considered the possibility of pushing on towards Jerusalem. It's impossible to know for sure, but the essence of that idea, wherever it came from, was a desire to get more men to volunteer to fight. It's an attempt to replicate the Muslim Jihad, where men would trek for hundreds of miles to take part in the raids on Anatolia. If he did think it, perhaps Nicephorus was considering campaigns beyond Antioch. Maybe he thought the idea of an annual crusade would bring more territory under the banner of Christ. It almost wouldn't be worth speculating about if it wasn't for a story that comes to us during the reign of Zimisces. John had had to approach the frontier differently than Nicephorus. Phocas had been able to maintain pressure in the east during his whole career as domestic and then emperor. But when he died, the Rus-Bulgarian situation was unfolding, and so John had to deal with that just as the Fatimid threat appeared from Egypt. We therefore don't know how Zemiskis would have proceeded if he'd inherited a peaceful situation and needed to make a choice about whether to go on attacking Syrian cities. What we do know, though, is that on his final campaign, John marched to Tehran in Armenia to secure 10,000 troops for his advance against the Fatimids. The march went well, as you know. He made it to Damascus, captured various forts, received tribute, and generally marked his territory so that the Fatimids would know the kind of resistance they were dealing with. In the Byzantine histories, that is all that's reported. But in another source, we hear that John did not turn around at Damascus. Instead, he kept marching on into Palestine. There he took more cities and even reached Nazareth. Jerusalem glimmered in the distance, but he'd had to turn back. This report comes to us from a letter. A letter which John supposedly wrote to the Armenian ruler Ashot III, the man who lent him those 10,000 soldiers. We're pretty confident that this Palestinian excursion did not take place. It would have been an extremely long march for John's army, exposing it to serious danger, and it would have meant assaulting Fatimid-held positions directly. And considering that soon after the campaign, John's ambassadors were asking for a peace treaty down in Cairo, it wouldn't have made a lot of sense to assault them beforehand. So either the letter is a fabrication, or John lied. The letter comes to us from a 12th century history, so after the Crusades, uh, which may have influenced the author to invent this episode. But it's also possible that the letter is authentic and that John decided to lie. Now, why would he do that? Well, he'd just been loaned 10,000 troops by the senior leader of the Armenian world. If Zimiskis was thinking about taking on more campaigns in the lands of the former caliphate, 
then he would need their assistance. Perhaps a letter hinting at what could be achieved if all Christians banded together would suit his purposes. This is far from hard evidence. Uh, Even if John did lie, and he was looking for more mercenary troops, it's still possible that he wasn't thinking about conquest, uh, simply that the Fatimids had just besieged Antioch, and Zimisces may have feared that full caliphal armies were going to come knocking on the door pretty soon, and he wanted the Armenian world right behind him. Whatever the truth behind the letter, the sources make it clear that both Christians and Muslims assumed there would be further conflict. The imperial PR machine was happy to imagine Jerusalem as a potential target in order to demonstrate the new reach of their military. While Muslim leaders were keen to instill obedience and discipline with talk of how the vicious Byzantines were gunning for their lands. If the political situation across the former caliphate had remained chaotic, it certainly would have been tempting for Roman leaders to consider further attacks. But that isn't what happened. Basil would face revived powers in the Balkans and in the east, and revolts by the very generals who would have had to prosecute any further expansion. By the time those situations have been dealt with, the momentum and skill set of the conquest army would be long gone. The very different priorities of Basil II will be the focus of the podcast for the next 50 years. So let's finish today by talking about the new threat in the East, the Fatimid Caliphate. The formation of this new state goes back to the divide between Sunni and Shia Muslims. In very simple terms, between those who supported the traditional caliphate as a political entity and those who felt the state should be guided more directly by religious inspiration. Naturally, as the Abbasid state began to fall apart, there were those who wanted a religious revival, one that would bring with it God's approval and an end to chaos. The Fatimid movement began in Syria with a man named Ubaid Allah al-Mahdi, who claimed that he was the Imam, the supreme spiritual leader who would redeem the world. This caused a great deal of controversy, as you can imagine, so he fled to modern Algeria, where he found a following amongst the Berber population. Once he'd secured himself as their leader, he drove them on to seize the local capital of Karawan. This was way back in 910. And as they celebrated their victory, al-Mahdi announced the creation of the Fatimid Caliphate. We call them the Fatimids, because they traced their descent to Fatima, Muhammad's daughter. In order to establish the caliphate as a serious political entity, al-Mahdi could not stay in Africa. So as soon as he could, he began preparations to conquer Egypt. This was not accomplished until 60 years later. Al-Mahdi's great-grandson was now in charge, and he captured the Nile from its post-Abbasid regime. This was around 970, shortly after the death of Nicephorus and the capture of Antioch. 
From a Muslim perspective, news from the Northern Front had been bad for some time. But the fall of Antioch was a big, dark headline. The Byzantines now had a foothold in Syria, and surely their armies would come raiding south every year from now on. This really was the prevailing mood. During one of John's campaigns, there were riots in Baghdad. So anxious were the people that the Romans might be coming their way. In this climate of fear, the Fatimids saw their destiny. They would unite the Muslim world and restore Islamic supremacy on the battlefield. With an effective army and the wealth of Egypt behind them, you would think that many would welcome their arrival. But remember that Syria was a largely Sunni domain. As the Fatimids advanced through the Levant and besieged Antioch, they faced resistance from both the cities and the Bedouin. It was largely because of armed resistance by their fellow Muslims back in Palestine that the Fatimids were forced to break off the siege. John then took on his campaign all the way to Damascus to make it clear that he saw northern Syria as his sphere of influence. Most of Palestine was now under Fatimid rule, and the lands in between became a buffer between the competing empires. The local Sunni Arabs looked out for their own interests, often playing the two sides against one another or hiring mercenaries to form their own garrisons. As Professor Caldellis mentioned, this will essentially be the status quo for the next century. But don't think that means that peace has broken out. No, the Fatimids were not content with what they had, and war will continue when the narrative resumes. Despite all these obstacles to further eastern expansion, the true nail in the coffin for those ambitions will be the revival of the Bulgarian state. We should have known this would happen. The Bulgarians have been the most obdurate and resourceful foe of the Romans for centuries. Why let the conquest of your capital and northern border stop you from continuing in that grand tradition? Next time, we travel west to see what we can learn about the state of play in the Balkans. What's been happening since the peace was signed 50 years ago? What did the Roman occupation look like? And where will Bulgarian resistance rise from? When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.